Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. I like to pretend that that's my theme music as I come out. Makes me feel like I'm going to preach good. I kid. That's a terrible joke. Um, Hey, it's great to see you all this morning. Great to have you all together. I do want to really quick before I jump into the sermon, I just want to give props and shout out and, and a little hand clap, even though He's not even going to hear this, but I just want to tip my cap to our new family pastor, Spencer, who's doing an incredible job and inherited a lot of challenges um, with the season of, that our church was in and then the no 845 service. So this week, if you didn't know, it was the first time that our 845 kids service was open. And so when you see Spencer out in the lobby or wherever, you, when you go pick up your kids, Pastor Spencer... Just uh, tell him how awesome of a job he's doing and encourage him. Not like he's down or anything like that. I just think it's important to encourage people when they're doing a great job, and he is. So uh, let's go ahead and also just go ahead and give a hand clap for the Lord working through Spencer that way. And through our church family wanting to, to help take that responsibility up to not just be consumers, but to be contributors. And that's one of our core values here, and so we're thankful for that. Um, If you're new here, we are doing something called the Year of the Bible, where we are reading through the Bible in a yearly Bible reading plan. And then many of our community groups, which you saw a bunch of tables out in the lobby today inviting you to those, many of the community groups are going through this Bible reading plan, discussing it. And then come Sundays, we talk about it, preach and teach about what we read throughout the week. And it has been awesome and profound to hear how God has been touching people's lives, how people have been growing in their faith, growing in their knowledge of scripture. They've been reading the Bible for the first time. There's been people who have for the first time had excitement reading their Bible. Just tons of wins that are coming from this and and what God is doing. And I'm very excited about that. Right now we're wrapping up last week in week nine. We read through the end of Exodus and jumped into Leviticus, which means we're at the really exciting part of the Bible. And for those of you who read it last last week, you're going, really? Um, Exodus is often the part, or I'm sorry, not Exodus, but Leviticus is often the part of the Bible where people are gung-ho about their Bible reading plans and they're going, okay, Genesis, all right, yeah, I knew God made the world, Abraham, oh yeah. Now, what, was, what just happened there? I don't understand that, but okay. And let's see, keep going through Genesis reading and you're getting excited, then Exodus, and it's like, oh yeah, the plagues, and I'm familiar with this, and you're sticking with it. And then Leviticus comes in like a fire hose and just like, you're like, Okay, this is often where a lot of people fall off the rails. And so I encourage you to stick with it. If you want to, if you're new here and want to jump in on the reading plan with us, you can go out to the info desk after the service is over, grab a reading plan, and jump in. We would love to have you with us. And if you fell off and if you hit Leviticus and you're like, ugh, then just jump back in. Let's keep going as we're all into this, in this together. Because also... There's a lot of reading that happens throughout the five days of the week that I cannot teach on. So it's really helpful for you if you've done the reading. Having said that, last week we saw God giving his people the law. He gave the Ten Commandments. He's essentially giving them their end of the deal to keep covenant with him and be his, what he said, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. He told the people of Israel, hey, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt, out of your slavery. I'm choosing you to be my prized possession out of all peoples in the earth because the whole earth is mine. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Priests are the people who represent people groups to God. 
and vice versa. The priest ministers between God and people. And so he's telling Israel, you're going to be the people that shows the whole world who I am. And because of that, because you're going to be my people and represent me, you will also be a holy nation, meaning unlike all other nations. There are things that the other nations do that you will not do because you are mine. There are things other nations don't do that you will do because you are mine. And then he launches into this covenant, beginning with the framework of the Ten Commandments and begins digging down into the nuance of more detailed commandments. And as we learned last week, we saw all these commands and laws given to the people of Israel. And in their naive, well-intended passion, they said, we will do it. Everywhere, God, you got it. Everything that the Lord has commanded. In fact, they summarized it by saying this. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And can't you just picture God on his throne going, (laughs) that's cute. Because we had already seen several times where they had explicit, clear commands given that they didn't obey. But maybe this time will be different because it's an invitation from God to go into covenant with him. So maybe this time with that framework and it being the creation of a covenant between these people and their God, maybe this time it'll be different. Don't hold your breath. We left off seeing the Israelites respond to God's command. All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And we pick up right there in chapter 24 of Exodus where we were. We're going to read today verses 12 through 18 in Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instructions. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So we see God finish giving the commands. The people of Israel say, you got it, we'll do it. And then God says, Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you the tablets, the commands that I just spoke to you. I'm going to give them to you. Moses goes up. People are seeing clouds and fire on top of the mountain as the presence of God. They're at the base of the mountain, trembling, terrified, saying, yeah, go ahead, Moses. You go on up there. And then we'll pick up here again in verse 20, or chapter 25, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. Notice this phrase right here. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate, uh, breast, excuse me, breastpiece. And hear, hear this verse, verse 8. 
And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God giving the context of what he's about to describe to Moses saying, I'm about to give you a bunch of instructions. You're going to collect things, materials from the people who have their hearts moving them to give. You're going to collect and we're going to assemble a place that is going to be a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among my people. We've got to remember up to this point, as God led his people out of Egyptian slavery through mighty wonders and spectacular works, there has been this view of God that has been building among this people of how powerful, how holy, and to be honest, how terrifying a little bit he is with what they have witnessed. And then this same God says to Moses, I'm going to come and dwell among these people. And so he says, you're going to take all these materials from them, and I'm going to instruct you and tell you what to build. Verse 8 again said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So God calls them up the mountain gives them two things, the commandments, the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and the instructions for the tabernacle, and this holy tent where God would come and dwell among his people. Now, all of this, as mentioned earlier, God delivers to Moses while he's up on the mountain 40 days. Now, remember, this is also right after. This is right after they had been given the commands in preliminary, and they respond by saying, You got it, God. We're going to do all of it. We're going to obey every command. And then Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days with God. And the people start to go, where's Moses? Um, He's been up there 40 days. He must be dead. And so their immediate response, the same people who said, we're going to obey all of it. Their default response when they think that Moses is dead is to break the first two commandments. They, the first two commandments being, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make any graven images to worship instead of me. And that's exactly what they do. They're like, Aaron, what's going on? Moses is obviously dead up there. Make us something we, sh- we can worship. Aaron, who knows better, even the people sh- who know better, Aaron goes, uh, okay, give me all your jewelry. And he melts it all together and he shapes it into a calf. And the nation of Israel, who had just been delivered out of Egyptian slavery through ten plagues, through watching the Red Sea part and walk through as on dry ground, watching God go before them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, watching God give them manna, bread, every morning on the ground, watching God bring flocks of quail into the, into the tribe every night so they could have meat, watching God split open a rock and cause water to come out for them fresh, watching Moses throw a log into a, a, a pond of bitter water, and seeing that turn fresh, all these things, these same people seeing all of that go, let's make a little cow we can worship. And I tend to think, and I imagine you probably are as well, going, how stupid. Like, how could they forget? And we tend to, though, do the same thing where we will be in church or read a book or hear a sermon or something like that, and we just as zealous and naively go, I'm going to do it all. God, I give everything to you. I mean it this time. Even though I didn't follow the instructions on the bread like last time, I mean it this time. 
And right away, they just fall straight back into their old sinful habits of idolatry and worshiping something they made from their own jewelry. Like imagine that. You gave your ring and you know that your ring was part of this calf and now you're going, oh, calf. It's really dumb. But I think there's plenty of things too that if our lives were daily recorded and people were reading it thousands of years from now, they would be going, that's really dumb. They have the word of God. They've read scripture and they know better than to do what they're doing right now. Haven't they read where the scripture said this and they're still doing this? And so we get all indignant looking at the Israelites of old and go, how dumb were they? And I'm betting if every single thing we did was written down for others, there'd be a whole lot of how dumb were they too. We all need grace. And this is what this abundantly shows us, is that even when God extends to them an invitation to be his covenant people by saying, here's all the things that you will do, here's all the things that you won't do, because you're going to be holy, my kingdom of priests, they go, we got it, and they don't. And so God becomes angry and says, you know what, Moses, these stubborn, stiff-necked people, I'm done with them, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses intercedes on behalf of those people and says, God, please, for the sake of your name, that your name would not be profaned among the nations, please be merciful to your people and forgive them. And Moses, his plea is heard and God says, okay. But there is an abundantly obviously pro- obvious problem. The people know what they're supposed to do and they don't do it. There's a problem in these Israelite people. And so because of that, God with his desire to show his people that he wants to come and be among them, that he comes and wants to dwell with them, in order for him to be able as a holy God, flawless, perfect, powerful, good, for him to be able to come and dwell among a people who obviously are unholy, even though they know what they're supposed to do, he has to set up a process to to make them holy and purify them so that he can. Because the point here, with God being so inconceivably holy, meaning we cannot wrap our minds around how holy he is, so inconceivably holy that there must be a holy sacrificial system to pay for the unholiness, a.k.a. sin, of these people. There must be a holy purification process practiced with holy instruments by holy people in holy garments so that their unholiness doesn't get them killed. Because God is so holy and is so powerful, it's like the sun, so powerful. The sun is good, but it's powerful. And if you get close enough to the sun, you will die. And it's like that with God, that God is so holy, so good, that if the unholy approach him, you will die. And we saw this multiple times in the Old Testament, that people who went into the Holy of Holies, priests who had not properly purified themselves according to what God commanded, that went into his presence and fell over dead. And the people would hear the bells on the bottom of their garments stop ringing, and they would have to pull them out with a rope. We can see the time where there was a guy, when the Israelites were leading the ark, they had battle from these people who had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and, and they captured it back, and they're bringing it back into the city, and they're traveling with it on a cart, and it hits a bump, and the Ark of the Covenant's about to fall to the ground, and in good intention, someone meaning well sticks up his hand to steady the Ark and keep it from falling on the ground, and he's struck dead because he thought his hand 
was holier than the dirt that God made. So he falls dead to the ground. We see two of Aaron's sons, some of the first priests that were established, go into the tabernacle and do things out of order and they fall over dead. And we sit here, we're going like, whoa, God, like, seriously? And what this shows us, what it is meant to show us, is how God's holiness is so much higher than we think it is. Where he's saying, if you are to be my people, and if I am to dwell among you, and if you are to serve me, and if someone is to come into my presence to worship and serve and offer sacrifices, it will be done this way, wearing these clothes on this day, at this hour, with this sacrifice, all these things that God is showing His holiness is on a level that the people don't understand. And so from that, he begins to tell Moses, okay, I've got these commandments for you, but here's the other thing. You need to collect these materials from the people. I'm going to give some of them my spirit to give them skills to become craftsmen, to build this tabernacle, this place that is going to be where I dwell among my people. They're going to make the Ark of the Covenant, this box that's going to hold some holy, sacred elements And my presence is going to dwell on top of this ark in between the two cherubim angels there. And that's where once a year you're going to offer a sacrifice to atone for all of the nation of Israel. He he tells them how to make the table of the bread of the presence or the showbread where, where there's going to be 12 loaves of bread there representing the provision that God gives to the 12 tribes of Israel. He tells them you're going to make a golden lampstand with what today we see as a menorah, the center stem with six branches coming off that represent the light of God's presence in that tabernacle. Then he gives him the instructions on here's how you're going to build the tabernacle. You're going to make it this long, this wide, this tall, this many posts, this many rings, this big curtains, this thick, these colors, these patterns, this embroidered in it, everything to meticulous detail. Again, God trying to say, if anyone's going to be my people, if I'm going to dwell among them, if they're going to worship me, if they're going to serve me, if they're going to be my kingdom of priests and holy nation, they will do so this way. Letting them know there is a way that God will make people holy. Then he tells him how to make the priestly garments. What colors, what fabrics, what patterns, what stones to put where, what to engrave on the stones, what to put on their heads saying holy to the Lord as these priests are to represent to God the people of Israel. Then he instructs them, instructs them, here's how those priests are going to be consecrated and made holy so that when they come into the tabernacle, they don't fall over dead. And then he instructs them, here's how you're going to create the altar of incense. He tells them how to make the, brazen, or the bronze altar out where all the sacrifices in the outer court would be offered by the high priest. That if your family committed a sin... You'd have to know, okay, according to the sin we committed, we have to offer this type of animal. So we take that animal to the priests in the outer courts of the tabernacle. They offer it for us that we might have atonement for our sins. And so all these different pieces, God gives meticulous to the T instructions on what is to be built, how it's to be built, what it's to be made out of, who is supposed to serve, how they're supposed to serve, how they're supposed to prepare themselves, all these things to say, I'm taking this very seriously. And then we close Exodus and we hop over to Leviticus, a book full of sprinkles and skittles and rainbows. 
Now, this is the book where then after God sets up the tabernacle and all the utensils and all the furniture, he then says, now here are the sacrifices I will accept. And he goes on to talk about the laws for burnt offerings, the laws for grain offerings, the laws for peace offerings, the laws for sin offerings, the law for guilt offerings. All these different laws that, again, depending on what you needed to offer, was determined by what you had done. Are you trying to offer thanksgiving to, the, to God? Well, then that's this kind of sacrifice. Did you commit adultery? Well, there, there's this kind of sacrifice. Or did you do X, Y, Z? Here's what you do for those sins. Making it one more time clear that he's to be taken very, very seriously. Now, I'm a pastor, and so I've gone to hospitals to visit people a lot. Many times I've gone to visit people who were sick or on their deathbed or had surgery or an injury or whatever. I've been to lots of hospitals. And plenty of times, in fact, more often than not, when you go to see someone in a hospital, there's a process. They tell you, you've got to sanitize your hands this way. There's been times where they say, you have to put on this robe. And there's been times where they say, you have to put on this glove and put on these masks and all these things. Why? Because there is someone in the room who is weakened or immunocompromised to the extent that my presence could bring them harm or even death. And so because of that, there's a process I have to go in or go through to go into their presence sometimes. And this is the same thing, but flipped. This is a process that God requires so that people can come into his presence and not fall over dead. Not because he's evil, but because he is so powerful, pure power, pure glory, that fallen sinful humans must be purified to be in his presence. And so there's all these instructions on how to sacrifice goats and bulls and lambs and doves and incense and bread and oil and all these different things. And I know this seems really gory and bloody and messy. And it is. It's meant to be. By design. You have to understand for the people of Israel, when they would be taking a, a qualified animal, it was costly to them. That, that, they didn't have dollars. Now they had coins and stuff like that, sure. But to them, this is their livelihood that they're offering to the Lord. They're coming to him with sacrificial animals and they're watching this priest and they're watching the blood come out. And for them, it is a visual reminder that there is a cost for sin. Scripture teaches us the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9 would tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Leviticus tells us that same thing. Leviticus also tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And this is why blood is required for sacrifice. The wages that God requires when people sin against him as holy is death. The good news of as we read these things and we're thinking, gosh, this is harsh, this is heavy, this is, man, bloody and gory. What we forget is this is actually God providing grace and mercy to his people saying, I want to be among you, I want you to be my prized possession, but in order for that to be the case, you have to be holy. And because there's something wrong with you and you obviously are incapable of being holy through your practices and your actions, here's how you get holy again through these sacrifices. And this is how you can remain and be my people. Essentially, God is giving to his people a contract. He said to them, you'll be my, my, my kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if you obey all my commands. How many of you have ever signed a contract before? 
Most of you probably, I have, if you've, especially if you've bought a house, you're, you're signing your name to, till the point where you get like writer's cramp because you're just sitting there like sign, paper, flip, sign, flip, sign, flip, sign, flip. And you're, at one point you're like, what am I even signing? And the real estate agent's like, this one's saying that. And so you're like, okay, I just have to trust you. But you're signing and signing and signing contracts. But what are you doing when you're signing those contracts? You're making a legally binding agreement between two parties where they're saying, I will give you my house if you give me this earnest money or this down payment and then this other company buys the house from our company who bought the house for us that we were paying mortgages to, all this mess of contracts. God essentially gives the covenant as a contract to say, here's the deal I'm laying out before you. If you're gonna be my people, here's what it looks like. You're gonna obey my commands and because I know you're incapable of faithfully obeying my commands, I'm going to set up a sacrificial system. Because if you're going to be my people, you will be holy. And since you don't have holiness in your heart, I need to keep making you holy. And this is heavy. This isn't one of those sermons where it's like, yippee! Where we come out of here all rosy feeling. This is meant to be heavy on us. Where we can look at the sacrifices that were necessary and go, man, that is what my sin costs. And more so for us today in the new covenant where we recognize it wasn't just the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves. We recognize it was the spotless blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who laid his blood out on the altar for us that we could come back into relationship. So in light of all this, we see in Leviticus that it shows us God graciously provides a way for people to live in his presence. He graciously provides a way for people to live in his presence. Now, here's where I want to unfold this masterful sermon that I wrote to explain to you guys how Jesus made all that stuff answered and fulfilled and better and new. And as I went to the place in Scripture that teaches all this, I'm like, actually, I can't really say it better than that. So here's what we're going to do. Buckle up. We're about to read Hebrews 8 and 9, two chapters. Sit up, we're going to read through the entire chapter of Hebrews 8 and the entire chapter of Hebrews 9. If you're comfortable enough with the person next to you, just go ahead and tickle their ribs a little bit. Wake them up. No, don't do that. That's awkward. I shouldn't have said that. That's weird. Because I want us to see, as we have been doing throughout this whole year so far, is look, oh man, some of you guys did that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I just made this awkward. What we have been doing and will continue to do is go, okay, we see in the Old Covenant, we see in the Old Testament, God setting up things that were foreshadowing what Jesus would do in the New Covenant. Remember, the Passover lamb that the New Testament reveals, Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. We see Isaac being offered on the mountain, on the wood that he carried up on the mountain. We see in the New Testament, Jesus carries the wood of the cross up the mountain and is offered on it as a sacrifice for our sins. There's so many types and shadows foreshadowing the Old Testament, pointing forward to what Jesus would accomplish in the New Testament. So today, open up to Hebrews chapter 8. And let's look at the sermon in Hebrews 8 and starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So there's some contrasts being drawn here. 
He says, we have a new high priest. Not that, not that those Levitical priests that in and of themselves were sinners and need to offer sacrifices for themselves. We have a new high priest. And there's the real tent, the true tent of the Lord that was set up by the Lord and not man. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to order or offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, talking about Jesus, this new high priest, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's what we just read from Exodus on the mountain where God showed him these instructions. Verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault within, or with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And he goes into this prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet Jeremiah starts talking to Israel, the people who had this old covenant, about the new covenant that God would make. Let's see what he says about this new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Think about this for a second. Parents in the house, raise your hand. All right? Quite a few. You can put your hands down. How many of you parents have ever had to lead your children by the hand? Plenty of times. You're going... No, we're not going over there. We're going this way. You're not going out into the street. You will be killed by a car. You're coming with me this way. Or when your child's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. And you're like, you're 30 pounds. Come on. (laughs) You don't have a choice. I'm leading you by the hand because I'm your good father who loves you, who wants what's best for you. And you want something that's contrary to what's best for you. So I'm just going to lead you by the hand into what truly is best for you that you don't understand with your little child brain. Good and, and, good and loving parents lead their children by the hand away from their own destruction. And so he's saying, this new covenant, though, isn't going to be like the old one where I led them by the hand. Let's continue to see what he says here. For they did not continue in my covenant. Hmm. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's saying it's not going to be, this new covenant isn't going to be like the old one, where I give them all the knowledge and all the commands of what they're supposed to do, and I lead them by the hand saying, come on, you little rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked kid. You are going to do this way if you're my child representing me. If people know you got my last name, you're going to behave. He's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. Rather, in the new covenant, I'm going to change your heart because our do comes from our heart. Our love, our want to, because here's the deal. All of us know good and bad. Everybody knows right from wrong. But just like Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, he says, the law showed me my sin. The law showed me all the things that I wasn't supposed to do and therefore made me want to do it. Not that the law is bad, but that the law is good and reveals that I'm bad. 
And so Jeremiah is saying, the prophet in Jeremiah 31 is saying, there's going to be a new covenant where we're not led by the hand anymore, but where God writes his law on our minds and on our hearts. Because if our relationship with God is just all the, here's the commands, here's how you obey, and here's what you do. And listen, there are commands from God for us still to this day. But if our relationship with God is just following obeys obeys and commands out of this begrudging little child, like when you tell your child, go uh, go apologize to your sister. I'm sorry. You parents go, okay, good job, right? No. When they're like, I'm sorry. You're like, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. What was that? Yes. Say it like you mean it. God cares about our mean it. God's not interested in just saying, here's my commands. The reason he gave this in the old covenant was to help us recognize we don't got the goods. To help us recognize our inability to live holy. And our inability to live holy is what makes us live this life where we know the rules of Christianity and we carry it around like this burden going, oh God, I, I, I thank, uh, thank you Lord that I'm a good person. Yet Jesus, last week we talked about how he shoots holes in the argument that we are good people by saying even if you look at the woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. If you're even angry at your brother, you're just like the murderer before God. And so for all of us who are sitting here going, I, yeah, I can do those commands. I can follow that. I can be a good person for Jesus because, I mean, by the way, I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I better act right. I guess I better obey. I guess I better follow. God's not interested in that the same way that your spouse is not interested in you going, well, I guess I better take you on a date. Like, how would that go, guys? If I walked up to my wife and I was like, honey, I guess I better go on a date with you. Not only does that backfire on me, (laughs) that does not honor her. That means that I'm engaging with her and interacting with her and relating with her according to what I'm supposed to do rather than what I want to do. And vice versa, wives to husbands. Nobody wants this commanded relationship. God is looking at our hearts, which is why the prophet Jeremiah said there's a new covenant coming. It's not going to be like the old where I led you out of Egypt by the hand, but I'm going to put my law into your mind and put my laws onto your hearts. The prophet Ezekiel echoed the same thing, saying this new covenant where God will remove our stony, stubborn heart and replace it with a heart of flesh, tender and responsive to his decrees. And so if you are the person who is trying to be a good person and trying to be a good Christian, kudos to you. I'm sure either you're new to it or you haven't got to the place yet where you're frustrated enough to, like the Israelites, finally go, what's wrong? There's still something wrong. As we continue reading in verse 11, and they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship Going on in chapter 9, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind it, the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff uh, that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail. He's like, we ain't got time to go there. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared, as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, he entered once for all. Everyone say, once for all. Come on, say, once for all. Into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the, promise, the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, talking about a will and testament, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Here we go. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, 
So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Praise the Lord. As we read these heavy sections from Exodus and Leviticus with all these laws and commands and sacrifices, I pray that it sits on us heavy as it's supposed to. So that we can look at what Jesus did and feel the elation and joy of him offering himself for our sin. And not like the old covenant sacrifices where they had to keep on offering them every time they sinned. Or they had to offer on the day of atonement every year just to make sure that they got everything covered. But Jesus Christ offered his blood on the altar in the heavenly tabernacle in God's presence by his throne once and for all. And the same way in courtrooms today, how prosecutors will prosecute a defense by holding up evidence and saying this person is guilty of said crime because of X, Y, Z. Here's the evidence. Judge, you must condemn. Scripture calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us and throws guilt and shame upon us. But we recognize we have a defendant, our high priest, Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor, like Moses interceded for the people. Jesus Christ intercedes for us by saying, Father, judge, I do know of the sin, but my blood cleansed it. And the guilty has been made not guilty. And if you went to the ancient Israelite who heard all these commands and all these laws and all these decrees and you said to them, let me tell you about a covenant that isn't designed just to get God to dwell amongst his people, but its purpose is that God could dwell within his people. They would have been freaking out. They'd have been thinking, wait. There's no way that the holy God of the universe, Yahweh, the God who is unlike any other, the God who is who he is, I am who I am, there's no way that God is willing to live in unholy, sinful people. And we would be able to answer and say, you haven't heard of the sacrifice. We're not talking about bulls and goats. We're talking about the lamb that he offered for himself, the blood of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who pays for his sins in a way that all your goats and all your lambs and all your bulls and all your doves and all your frankincense cannot pay. The blood of Jesus Christ was offered once and for all, not only to cleanse us and wash away sin to where we could stand before God and hear not guilty, but beyond that, what it points out is that it even washes our conscience. Our own guilt, our own shame, where we feel like we can't come to God, we recognize because what Jesus did, we can come. In confidence, in joy. The same way that I love when my daughters run up to me. We can come to our Father, not unaware of his holiness, but grateful that he paid for our sin, that we could be made holy and come to the holy God and be called his holy people, his holy family, his holy children. Where we're no longer living and serving by a contract we're trying to fulfill. Rather, now we live and serve and do because of our identity in Christ. 
Not because of what we're trying to become, but because of who he has made us to be. Taking out that stony, stubborn, sinful, dead, rebellious heart. And giving us a heart of flesh where we want to serve him, want to please him, want to obey him, want to live as a living sacrifice. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law that is good, that confronts us, that helps us recognize we don't got this, that helps us recognize our need for you. God, thank you for making a way for us to be your people and not only seek out your presence, but to be filled with your presence by the Holy Spirit. God, I ask today if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, anyone online, anyone in commons, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would soften their hardened heart, remove it, and replace it with the heart of flesh. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus, bring them to repentance of their sins, and bring them into authentic faith in Jesus Christ, believing and placing all their hope, all their confidence on the blood of Jesus and on the altar in the holy of holies in heaven. Placing all of our confidence for this life and the next. And what you did on the cross, God, I ask you to save people this morning. And save people who might watch this later. And God, if there's anyone today who needs to make right with you and repent of their sin, confess their sin, and place faith in Jesus Christ, I ask that you would move on their hearts to stay in their seat once service is over and do so. In Jesus' name, amen.